chance encounters. I think about, <clears throat> I think about uh, times when we catch up with people that we don't plan to catch up with. In fact, um, this week I think I caught up with about five different people who I knew from my past and just by a chance encounter, circumstances brought us together. And that's the message that God's laid on my heart this morning, a chance encounter with Jesus. We're going to be looking at John chapter 4. But before we do that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we give you thanks and we give you praise. We thank you that you've brought us here, that we might meet you here. Glorify your name, Lord, in this time that we're spending with you, in fellowship with you. Oh, yes, we're in fellowship with one another. And I love seeing the love that's in this church. I enjoy seeing the smiles on the faces. Lord, I pray for those who are new faces that I haven't seen before. May your name be glorified and magnified in them. May they feel at home that they're among family. I pray that they're at ease, Lord, that they can hear the message, that they can listen, that they can open up their hearts and their eyes. And for us who have been here time and time again, Lord, do a new work in us. Your word says that your mercies are new every morning. I pray that we come here, Lord, with a refreshed spirit, Lord God, desiring to draw closer to you, to get to know you more and more, to have you get to know us more and more, that we could be open and vulnerable with you, Lord. Glorify your name, Lord, in this message. Lord, help me to be faithful in how I deliver this, the message that you've laid on my heart. Use my words, Lord God. Use my mind. Let it be your message and yours alone. Let you be glorified, Lord. The glory is yours, Lord. You are the saviour and no one else can save but you. So in Jesus' name I lay this. Amen. A chance encounter with Jesus. I want to take a look at the woman at the well. Who this woman was. <clears throat> what Jesus was out to achieve. I want to look at the attitude of the woman. The attitude of Jesus. The attitude of the disciples. And the attitude of the people. As I go through the backdrop, we have John chapter 1. We have the testimony of John the Baptist about Jesus. We have Jesus calling his disciples. John chapter 2. We have the miracle of turning the water into wine. We also have the time when Jesus chased out those that were in the temple to overturning the tables. We have chapter 3. The meeting with Nicodemus. Nicodemus coming to Jesus by night. Nicodemus being the ruler of the Jews. And Jesus meeting with him. And the famous declaration that we see everywhere. For God so loved the world. That brings us into chapter 4. Starting from verse 1. When therefore the Lord knew how that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptised more disciples than John, though he himself baptised not, but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again. And he must needs go through Samaria. Then he comes to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near a parcel of ground that Jacob gave his sons Joseph. And I love the way the Bible put it. He needed to go. In fact, the King James Version, which is one of my favourites, and we won't get into that, says he must needs go. This wasn't a choice. He was compelled. He needed to go. And we know that everything that Jesus did was driven by the Father. 
We could ask ourselves what made him take this particular route. But we know that everything Jesus did was driven by the Father. John 8, 28 tells us, Then Jesus said unto them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, you shall know that I am he, and I do nothing of myself. I do nothing of myself. In fact, everything I speak, I speak is of the Father. Jesus was a perfect reflection of God the Father. When the disciples said, show us the Father, it'll be enough for us. Jesus turns around and says, I've been with you this long and you still don't know. Everything Jesus did was driven by the Father. Now, where is Samaria? It borders Galilee to the north and Judah to the south. And it says, it was a parcel of land that Jacob gave Joseph. And who were the Samaritans? The Samaritans were a group of people. The Assyrians had conquered Jerusalem at a particular time. And these Assyrians began to breed, interbreed with the Jews. And there was a reputation among the Samaritans. In fact, we know that, um, that the Samaritans actually didn't have a good reputation. For example, for some of us who know the word of God and know the Bible, know the story of the Good Samaritan. When one of those that was asking Jesus said, you know, what must I do? He said, keep the law. And he, willing to justify himself, said, who is my neighbour? When he says, love God and love your neighbour. And it says, he, willing to justify himself, said, who's my neighbour? Who's the one that I'm supposed to love? And Jesus chose a Samaritan as an explanation for that. And why did he choose the Samaritan? Because he knew that the Samaritans in the eyes of the Jews were sometimes considered lower than the Gentiles. They were considered like people who had given up their faith, they'd compromised. And so they didn't have a good reputation among the Jews. Now Jacob's well was there in verse 6. Jesus therefore being wearied with his journey sat on the well and it was about the sixth hour. Now, it's interesting that it notes that it was about the sixth hour. Jewish time normally starts at about 6 a.m., sunrise. And so the first hour is around that five to six mark. And so the sixth hour was about midday. Why does the Bible tell us that it was about the sixth hour? Let's look deeper. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. What was this woman doing, drawing water around midday? It was probably about the worst time of the day to do it. It was probably the hottest part of the day. And yet we have this woman doing this. It goes on to say, for his disciples were gone away to buy meat. And again, the Bible is really good at painting settings for us. It loves to paint pictures. We love storytelling. I hear that so often. It's great when you add a story to whenever you're giving an example because we understand things generally through stories. We relate to them. And the Bible starts to draw this picture for us. The disciples have gone away. They've gone out to buy food it's around the midday, sixth hour. And here's this woman. Jesus comes. He's wearied. And he says to this woman, give me a drink. What's the Bible painting for us? As I see it, it's painting an intimate conversation, a chance encounter with Jesus but it's more than just an encounter. He must needs go through Samaria. He's wearied. 
He sees this woman and he begins to interact with her. No one else is around, just Jesus and this woman. And they begin to have this intimate conversation. Then said the woman in verse 9, Then said the woman of Samaria, Notice it repeats it unto him. How is it you, being a Jew, asks of me, which is a woman of Samaria, for the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans? See, this woman understood the connection between the Jews and the Samaritans. Like I said to you, they had a reputation But in Jesus' typical Jesus fashion, he looked straight past that. He didn't sit there and answer that. He didn't get caught up in that. He didn't deal with them as a group. He dealt with her as an individual. Why is that so important to know? Because I think we also get caught up in these things. It's in our DNA. We worry about what people think. We worry about what people say. We worry about this. We worry about that. And she was worried. She thought, how's this going to interact? How's this thing going to play out? So in some senses, this woman is really just a reflection of you and me the way we think, the way we are, the way we come into our chance encounters. Like I said, I I, I caught up with a few people that I didn't expect to catch up with. I hadn't seen for years and I could see the look in their face. What's he thinking? What's he going to say? How's this going to play itself out? And I know I've been in the same situation especially when it comes to certain uncomfortable events. We play it out in our mind over and over and over again. We have conversations with people in our mind and we we never really have conversations with those people at all. I think that's why the Bible tells us, Matthew, and I'm pretty sure it's 15, it says when you've got a problem with somebody, go. Go. And approach them. If you know that you've got a problem, they've got a problem with you, it says go and approach them. God loves it when we interact. God knows how we work. God knows the fears that we have. And most times they're just fears. They're not based in reality. They're just things that we are afraid of and we justify them in our mind. Oh, yeah, but I don't want to start an argument. Oh, yeah, but I don't want to get into this. Oh, yeah, but they're going through something. And God knows us better than we know ourselves. Verse 10, Jesus said unto her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that saith this, to thee, give me a drink. You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Notice that Jesus didn't answer her question. She posed a question to Jesus. He didn't even answer it. He went straight to something completely different. He said to her, if you knew who I am. If you knew, if you would have looked, you would have looked past all that, I, that you had spoken to me and not just spoken, but you would have made a request. Let's look at his words. If you knew the gift of God. He started with, if you knew the gift of God. God has something for you, he said to her. If only you knew. And you know what he says to her? 
You know, he says that to all of us. God has something for all of us. God has a gift, a gift, not earnings, not a reward, but a gift. God has a gift for you, he said. Also, if you knew one other thing, one other important thing, who it is that's telling you this, who's standing in front of you, whose presence you are in. If you knew the opportunity that you had, you would have jumped at it. They were the words of Jesus to her. If you knew the gift of God and who is telling you, you would have asked. You would have responded. Isn't this what we tell others? When we tell them about Jesus, don't we sit there and we say to them, if only you knew. Yet how many times do we speak that to ourselves? Ray, if only you knew. I loved it when Barry was up here earlier on for those that were at communion. He said, let's think of two words while we share in the breaking of bread. Forgiveness and freedom. Forgiveness and freedom. Isn't this what Jesus is all about? Forgiveness and freedom. But in typical humanistic attitude, she responds. Verse 11, the woman said unto him, Sir, you've got nothing to draw with. And the well's deep. From whence? From where are you going to get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well? And drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle. How are you going to do this? How are you going to do this? Her response tells us much. She was a woman of the world, earthly, with earthly wisdom. She couldn't see past that well and Jesus and water. She couldn't see past it. She had a heritage and yet she understood none of it. Sure, she knew where she came from. And I'm sure she was religious in many ways. In fact, her reference back to Jacob, to Joseph, to the Jews, to the Samaritans, tells us that she had some knowledge. But yet she was uh, yet to understand the power of her heritage, the power of what she was born into. Like I said before, Many of us are like this woman. This woman is a reflection of many of us. We say that we're born again. We identify with Jesus. We even identify with the cross. We share our faith with others. We're proud of what we believe. We're proud of our heritage. But do we really understand the gospel, the promises? And the power that God has for each one of us. And so as I see this woman, I see you and me. I also see Jesus. And Jesus begins to help her to understand. In typical Jesus fashion, he didn't think of himself He didn't think to himself, I'm tired. I can't be bothered. It's just me and her. She's just a Samaritan. Who's going to judge me on this? There's no one else to judge my reaction, how I deal with this. No, to Jesus, she was just as important as anyone else. Whether he was doing a sermon on the mount or whether he was talking to this woman, It was just as important to him. 
He didn't see the magnitude of what she was doing by the number of people that he was in front of. He saw the magnitude of what he was doing because there was a soul there. There was a soul there. And that soul was just as important as a multitude. Remember, the backdrop to this was, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, not for God so loved the Jews that he sent them a saviour. And this was Jesus just playing out those words. Verse 13 says, Jesus answered and said to her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. This was her circumstances. And verse 14, But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be a well of water springing up into everlasting life. And his gift, her circumstances, his gift, he made a distinction between the two, between what she had and between what he had. So often God does that in our lives. He shows us what we have He reminds us of what we have and what's attached to what we have. We have a job. We worry about our boss. We have a business and we worry about the revenue. We have a house and we worry about the bills. We have a wife and we worry about how to keep her happy. We have a husband and we worry about how we're going to submit. We have children, and we worry about our sanity. What we have and what he has. He has a gift, and he wants to give it to us. And we worry about what people are going to say. The woman said to him in verse 15, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come here to draw. She still didn't understand. The penny still hadn't dropped. She was still thinking on an earthly level. So Jesus dug deeper. And as with her, so with us. Jesus didn't just leave her there and Jesus doesn't just leave us there. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband. Come hither. Go call your husband. Come here. Now I'm thinking to myself, this probably would have thrown her off. What's the husband got to do with my answer? We're talking about water here. How's this going to play itself out. You ever been in that situation before where the subject starts off in one direction, takes another turn? You sit there and you think to yourself, where's this going? Sometimes you sit and think, you know what, I can't be bothered. You just cut the conversation. Sometimes you follow. You think, I'm curious where this is heading. So you ask. And this woman was curious. She wanted to know. So she probably said to herself, I'm going to indulge him. The woman said to him, I have no husband. Verse 17, I have no husband. Interesting answer. An interesting response. Jesus said to her, you've said, well, I have no husband. You've had five husbands. And he whom you now have is not your husband. In this, you've said truly, I've had five husbands. So now we get a clue. 
some sort of clue as to why she might have been drawing water out at midday. The woman had another reputation outside of just being a Samaritan. She'd had five husbands. She was now on to her sixth. So most likely, she was shunned. I reckon most definitely she wasn't trusted. And there was a pretty good chance that she wouldn't have had friends among the women. Five husbands onto a sixth. This also speaks a lot. And I reckon this woman wanted love. This woman was just after love. She wanted what everyone else wanted or what everyone else had. This woman wanted some sort of normality. Ever thought like that? Why do they have that? How come I can't get that? I want that. This will make me happy. This will fulfill me. This will be the icing on the cake. And she was prepared to do whatever it took to get it. This woman was determined. When it came to this, she didn't care what others thought. And I can't help but wonder, could she have avoided this predicament that she found herself in? Could something in her life have changed her somewhere down the track and she wouldn't have been in this situation? Verse 19, the woman said unto him, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. She thought, how else could he know this? How does he know about my life? And then in verse 20 she said, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Our fathers worshipped in Jerusalem. Now she begins to get curious about spiritual things. See, she wasn't totally clueless, but she was ignorant. So often we know the scriptures, so we're not clueless, just ignorant, unaware. Verse 21, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. The hour comes when you neither in this mountain nor at Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we know. For salvation is of the Jews. You worship ignorantly. You don't know what you're doing. We know salvation is of the Jews. Now... Jesus put the true distinction between the Samaritans and the Jews. And the only distinction that really mattered. The only distinction that really mattered. He says, but the hour comes, in verse 23, and now is when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeks such to worship him. This is now the opportunity that Jesus was looking for. Do you notice that he didn't go on to speak about the five husbands? Or the situation she was currently in? And if we keep on reading further, it's not mentioned again. It's not mentioned. And why do I think that's so important? Because so often we get caught up with the things on the outside. We get caught up in circumstances. We get caught up in the law, the do's, the don'ts. We try and analyse, psychoanalyse. That, that would be us. We would try and psychoanalyse this woman. We try and work out, like, why did she have five husbands? Like, is she even worth talking to? 
Like, will she ever get it? We make a judgment without actually getting to know the person. Now, I'm not saying that the law's not important. I'm not saying that the do's and don'ts don't count. But each thing has its place. And this wasn't the place. And we see that time and time again where Jesus, they throw a bait to Jesus about the law. They throw him a bait and he just doesn't catch. He always talks about the deep matters, the matters that the things that really count in our lives. The why, not the what. And he tries to get to the root of that. And that's the difference. For Jesus, this was an opportunity to speak to this woman, like I said, about things that really mattered. An opportunity to set the record straight about God, about man, about religion. Jesus said to her, something's happening. Something's happening. But he also said to her, nothing's really changed. That God is still the same yesterday, today and tomorrow. He goes on to say in verse 24, that God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. God is a spirit, he says. And that's always been the case. God has always looked for those that worship him to worship him not in actions, but in spirit And in truth, James tells us that our actions are just a reflection of our faith. That if we say we have faith, then our actions will follow. And so it's not about the action. It's always about the faith. I remember there was a time when I knew where my life was. And yet on the outside, everybody thought I was perfect. They couldn't see what was going on in here. And it's the same. Our actions are generally just a reflection of our faith. There's nothing new in essence about God's desire for a relationship with man. Nothing. And there's nothing really changed about God's desire and plan for salvation. We've gone through 2,000 if it's from Jesus, 4,000 if it's from Abraham, and 6,000 if it's from Adam, and nothing has really changed. Revelation 13 verse 8 says, And all they that dwell on the earth shall worship him whose names are written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. See, Jesus was there, crucified right from the beginning. It just physically happened 2,000 years ago. But God's plan for you and for I has not changed. Sometimes we sit there and we think to ourselves, if only I was born 100 years ago, 200 years, 500 years ago. Now the Bible tells us that the time that you are born is the time that God had ordained for you. The place where you are is the place that God had ordained for you. So if circumstances had changed... It wouldn't make a difference. The encounter you have with Jesus is the encounter God wants you to have now. Verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah comes, which is called Christ. When he has come, 
He'll tell us all things. So there you go. She knew the promises. She knew the word. And she was waiting. She knew. But in her waiting, there was a distraction. And Jesus just prompted her back again. I know that Messiah comes. I know that he'll tell us all things. Verse 26, Jesus said to her, I that speak to thee am him. I that speak to thee am he. Now there's a revelation. He tells her who he is. He tells her his purpose. Will the penny drop this time? Will she finally get it? And then verse 27 happens, and it says, Upon this, his disciples, his disciples came, and they marveled that he talked with the woman. Yet no one said to him, Why are you speaking with her? Why are you talking to her? Just as he said these words to her, his disciples came. The dynamic now had been broken and the intimacy disrupted. What next? The woman left her water pot and went away into the city and said to the men, Come and see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this that Christ? Something that Jesus had said to this woman began to stir within her. Now she needed to know. And now her reputation wasn't going to stop her. She didn't care. She just cared for the truth. Come and see. Come and confirm to me. Come and tell me what you think. Come. This stirring that was in her now was overwhelming her and she needed to know. And I think to myself, how does that speak to you and me? What are we prepared to do for the truth? Will we take risks for the truth? Will we worry about our reputation? Because this woman could have been told off. Remember, she was on her own. We reckon that, that she was probably there in the heat of the day because she probably had no friends. She probably had nobody that, that trusted her enough to associate with her, to talk to her. Now, she could have been yelled at. She could have been mocked. She could have been abused, ridiculed. Remember before she was at peace. She was alone, but she was at peace. Probably wasn't ideal, but at least she was left alone. Now there was a risk that things wouldn't get better. They'd get worse. But verse 30 says... Then they went out of the city and came to him. They went out, they listened to her. So a woman that was on her own now has a crowd with her, a crowd following her. And this woman that was on her own just turned into an evangelist pointing people to Jesus. Come and see. Come and tell me. Is this the Messiah? Is this the one that we've been waiting for? Now let's turn to Jesus and his disciples. Now try and get through this quickly. In the meantime, his disciples prayed him. They urged him and said, Master, eat. He said to them, I have meat to eat that you know not of. And the disciples said to one another, 
Has any man bought him anything to eat? See, she wasn't the only clueless one. Jesus starts to talk to them spiritually. Now remember, she'd just met Jesus. They'd been with Jesus. They'd seen the miracles. They were called of Jesus. They'd watched him. They heard him speak. And yet Jesus still had a work to do in them just as he did with this woman. I've said this before and I repeat it again. I'm a firm believer that people don't let us down. Our expectation of people let us down. See, we see people and we think to ourselves, they should know this, they should be doing that, they should be doing... See, they should, they should. It's our expectation of them. We judge them by how long they've been at church or how much they speak or what it is, but we fail to develop true relationships. Now, true relationships then build right expectations. When I get to know you, then I know what you're on about. Then I know what to expect from you because I'm getting to know you rather than just expecting something from you because you're 50 or because you've been a Christian for this long or you've been a Christian for that long. And Jesus says, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. He begins to speak to them and give them understanding. He begins to tell them about God and his relationship with man. About Jesus himself and his relationship with man. Their relationship with him and with man. And where they fit into the overall plan. That's why I love that. For me, it was like a confirmation. Open up my eyes in wonder. Show me who you are. Fill me with your heart and lead me in love to those around me. Because we're going to encounter people. We're going to have a chance encounter. Yesterday was a beautiful example of that. I saw somebody who had stopped going to church, who used to be part of, I don't know whether people remember when Brother George talks about the bungalow or Barry talks about the bungalow. She was part of the bungalow church. And I saw her and she'd stopped going to church and she stopped being, she started being disillusioned. And I thought to myself, I loved her. And I thought, how do I reach out? I haven't had a relationship with this person But we began to talk and she said to me, if Jesus saw me right now, what would he say to me? And I just prayed and I thought, Lord, what would you say? And I gave her the example of Jesus when he was going from death to his father and he stopped and saw Mary. And she thought he was the gardener. And I said, the only thing I can think of is to just call you by name. And I won't say her name. But I said her name at the time. And she began to cry. It broke her down. That's what it's about. God wants an intimate relationship with you and I. And if he saw you or if he saw me, He'd just say your name. He'd remind you that you are his. I love the message. Brother Barry said to us that he got a chance to hear Daniel's message a few weeks ago. And I got to hear it yesterday and I loved it. How he said to the woman that had the issue, daughter. The intimacy that's in that. And that is our God. He wants to be intimate with us. Salvation isn't just about where you go. It's about where you are. It's where you are. We think so often 
about tomorrow. And Jesus says, worry about today. And it's just about where you and I are now, not where we will be. Don't let tomorrow rob you of today. And Barry repeated it again today. Say you not, there are four months, then comes the harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes, look to the fields, for they are white, ready to harvest. There are so many people that need chance encounters with Jesus. And we are his hands. We are his feet. We are his words. We are his love. We are. Not we can become, but we are. We just got to keep reminding ourselves of that. And there's a reward for us. There's a reward for us. In verse 38, or in verse 36, and he says, He that reaps receives wages, and they that gather fruit unto eternal life. And both he that sows and reaps may rejoice together. And herein is that saying true. One sows, one reaps. Because I sent you to reap, whereon you bestowed no labour. Other men have laboured and you have entered into their labours. We've got to remember that we are just part of what God is doing and yet we can rejoice fully when God has done it. We can enjoy it. says it in verse 39, and many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of that woman which testified, he told me everything that I did. There you go, what started out to be a weary Jesus and a conversation turned into evangelism and a congregation. So when the Samaritans would come unto him, they besought him that he would tarry with them. And he stayed with them for two days. He was going through, but he stopped. And he stayed. Two days. See, they wanted to know more. They were now curious. And just as he did with her, he did with them. He stopped. He didn't think about where he was heading. He was thinking about where he was. And many more believed because of his own word. See, they got to hear it for themselves. They had their own intimate experience with Jesus. In verse 42, he said to the woman, and they said to the woman, now we believe, not because of your saying, but because we have heard him for ourselves and we know indeed that this is the Christ, the saviour of the world. She pointed them to Jesus and Jesus did the job. Think about that. She pointed them to Jesus and Jesus did the job. Our job is to point people to Jesus. Trust that he will finish the work that he has begun. Trust it. Trusted. So here we have two wells, the story of two wells, two sources of life, two types of emptiness, but only one way of salvation, one way of fulfillment, and one way of worship. So, what do you take from this? Do we relate to the woman? Have we found ourselves searching for that elusive fulfilment only to find ourselves alone, out of place, disconnected from others, needing an intimate conversation with Jesus? Are we like the disciples, close to Jesus, but don't really get it, needing a reminder of why we're here, what's most important in life? Or like the people 
We've heard the testimony from others. And we need our own experience. Whatever it is, Jesus is here. And nothing will stop him from reaching you. Not tiredness, not reputation, nothing. The Bible says in Romans 8, verse 31, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely, freely give us all things? Verse 38, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing will stop him. Nothing except us. We're the only thing that can stop Jesus from reaching us. God is a perfect gentleman. He doesn't barge through the door. He doesn't handcuff us and drag us away for an interrogation. He's the perfect gentleman And Jeremiah 2 says in verse 13, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and have hooned for themselves or cut out for themselves cisterns, wells, broken wells that can't hold water. I pray that's never, that's never, said of us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you for your word. But more importantly than your word, I thank you for your Holy Spirit. Because without your Holy Spirit, your word doesn't mean much to us. Lord, I thank you how faithful you've been with your word, preserving it. I thank you for your promise that you'll never leave us, you'll never forsake us. You said it was good for you to go because if you didn't go, you couldn't send your spirit who will tell us all things and bring all things to remembrance. So Lord Jesus, help us, Father. Help us to reach out. Help us to believe, to trust, to take time, to become intimate with you, to be vulnerable with you, Lord. That's what intimacy is all about. It's about vulnerability. Glorify your name in each one of us, Lord. I thank you for the new faces. I thank you for the familiar faces. I thank you, Lord God, for each one of us. Glorify your name, Lord, in this day. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Help us, us, Lord, to look past our circumstance and see you at the other end. You know the end from the beginning. We trust you, Lord. Help us to keep trusting you in all things and in Jesus' name.